All right, guys, um, if you're new or if you're visiting and you haven't been following us, don't worry. You know, we're in the middle of this, this book, but we're at a really crucial transitional point. When I began the book, I outlined it. If you remember, I said the book of Hebrews can be divided into two sections. This is the crossroads. This chapter, these verses are the two sections. It's, it's the, the gap. It's the, 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 the dash mark between what we've been studying and where we're going. The first part of the, the book is... Um, more doctrinal, and there's a lot of application up, up there for us, but it's, it's doctrinal truths about the superiority of Jesus Christ and who Jesus is better than and what Jesus is better than in regards to a, a Jewish mindset as the Jewish believers in Christ are being written to and are being told to, don't forsake Christ. He's the right way. You're on the right path. Don't go back to the old covenant. Don't go back to the old law. Don't go back to the old way of doing things because Jesus is far better than Abraham, Moses, the prophets, the law, the covenant, the tabernacle, all these things leading up to this point here in chapter 10 where we're now going to take everything we learn and really dig into the application. But everything that we've been studying since chapter 7 is building to this, this, this climatic point here in these verses. And, and, and just for sake of reference, as we get to this, chapter 7, we began this discussion, this final point about the superiority of Jesus Christ directly in relationship to the ministry of high priest, where Jesus is superior in his ministry as our great high priest and superior to any and every high priest who had come before him, who were the descendants of Aaron, right? Who ruled over the temple and the tabernacle and ministered on behalf of God to God's people. And in doing so, in chapter 7, as this discussion began about the superiority of the high priest ministry, the author illustrated and affirmed the fact that Jesus, who is the high priest of God, is the high priest according to this order, not the Levitical order that, 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 that Aaron and his sons are descendants of, of Levi, but specifically another order, a better order, the order of Melchizedek. And, and, and from this point, the priestly ministry was then expounded upon. There was a foundation that was set there. And then it was expounded on in chapter 8 as our attention was directed to our hope. Why there's hope in this for us and to the fact that through Jesus, we also have, through his superior priesthood, we've received or we enter into, we have a better covenant. A better covenant, if you remember, with better promises. And we talked in detail about those promises. And this is because Jesus doesn't mediate from the old covenant. He just didn't step in where Aaron and his sons left off and continue to do what God had set forth. The things that were fading away, the author said in chapter 8, and were about to, to pass away and be no more. He is Jesus, the high priest and mediator of a new covenant. We know it's a covenant established in his blood. A covenant of grace and mercy and not of works. A better covenant with its better promises. And then in chapter 9, the author went on to speak about the tabernacle, right? The actual structure or the building in which the Levite priests ministered. The old covenant, it says, with all of its ordinances and its divine services. And even in that, we were, we were shown that where Jesus ministers is better in that the, the Old Testament priests, the old covenant priests, they ministered in an earthly tabernacle. And, and, and it, 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 was, it was a place that was merely a copy of the true heavenly sanctuary, the heavenly tabernacle that Jesus has now entered into. 
When Jesus rose from the grave, we know that he ascended into heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of his Father. And there he lives forevermore as our great high priest in, 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 in before the very presence of God. But the fact of the matter is that all of these things that are superior that I've mentioned since the beginning of chapter 7 all the way up to now, all of these things that are superior, every single one of them are dependent upon one key thing. And without this thing, none of those other things matter. And it is this need for a better sacrifice. Without a better sacrifice, these superior things are not superior. They have no legs to stand on. They have no power within themselves. And as we close this discussion on the superiority of the high priest ministry of Jesus, a better sacrifice is the focus of this next chapter. And we know that this is a key factor in the superior, superiority of Jesus' ministry as high priest because back in chapter 9 in verse 22, we got a little look into where we're going. As the author alluded to the need for a better sacrifice, he said because there needs to be the remission of sins. A better sacrifice for the remission of our sins. And that's a very Christian word, a very uh, 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 religious word. And, and we'll talk about what that word means in just a minute. This remission of our sins. There needs to be a better sacrifice. And he was doing this. He brought this to the discussion for us to think about until we get to right here as he was comparing the earthly tabernacle and the heavenly tabernacle and quoted from the Old Covenant law found in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, which says this. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement, atonement, he says, for your souls. For it is the blood that makes the atonement for the soul. And this is something that was established in the very beginning of God's plan of redemption of man. And, 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 and whether it's the old covenant or the new covenant, we see the significance of a blood sacrifice. This word atone means to make amends to pardon, to release, to appease, to forgive. And so in chapter 10, this section concludes for us this discussion. It's the, it's the period, it's the end of the discussion on the superior priesthood of Jesus' ministry. And it concludes by explaining that the priesthood of Jesus is based upon a better sacrifice. The perfect sacrifice that Jesus made with His own life. And in light of this, we see that the perfect sacrifice that Jesus made is being contrasted for us to the imperfect sacrifices that were offered, that were offered under the Old Covenant. And by this, if you're taking notes this morning, this is what we're going to travel through. We're going to look at three reasons. There are three reasons. We're going to look at two of them this morning and then the third one next week. But three reasons for why Jesus' sacrifice is superior to the Old Testament sacrifices. And so as we move into chapter 10, it's important for us to keep context. That's something that I keep mentioning over and over again. And the importance of keeping context means that we are studying what has been said and written contextually so we don't take it out of context to make it, make it 
appear to be something other than what it is. And I've heard this chapter taught in different ways and other parts of, of Scripture taught in the book of Hebrews in, part, in different ways. But when we keep the proper context, it's clear what's being spoken of. So look back to chapter 9, the last two verses of chapter 9, verses 27 through 28. These are the transitional verses. This is the thought that we carry into this next chapter as we finalize this discussion. And it says in verse 27, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was also offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly await, those who eagerly wait for Him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And quickly, I want to explain this. I want to take this thought and, and expound on it because the author is essentially saying this to us, that if Jesus, had, if Jesus had failed to save through the sacrifice of His death at His first coming, hear this, then the only thing that would be left for any of us is the judgment of God. If Jesus had failed in His sacrifice to save us, there's no power in that at His first coming, then all that would be left for us is the coming judgment of God. But Christ did not fail to save. He rose from the grave, showing Himself to be alive, revealing that the sacrifice that He made was accepted by God. And He was offered up in that sense once for all the sins of many. And because of this, we who believe, we no longer look. Here's the good news. We no longer look for a coming judgment. The wrath of God is no longer waiting for us. Every last drip, every last drop of that cup of wrath that we deserve had been poured out upon Jesus on the cross. And with His death, we look forward to the salvation apart from the judgment of sin now. Listen, Jesus' final words on the cross are recorded in John chapter 19. And it tells this in this way. It says, verse 28-30, through 30, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, He said, I thirst. Now a vessel of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled the sponge with sour wine. And they put it on hyssop and put it to His mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, it is finished. Some of your translations may say paid in full. That's a, a literal translation there. It is finished. And it says, in bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. And he breathed his last, last breath. He committed his soul to the Father. And with this reminder, we look at the sacrifice that Jesus made, which sets us apart from the judgment we deserve as a result of our sin, and appoints us to the gift of God's salvation. And so in verse 1 of chapter 10, we read on, and it says, with that thought, with this truth for the law, looking to the Old Testament, the Old Covenant sacrifices, the law having just a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect for then would they not have ceased to be offered for the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sin but in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sin every year for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins underline verse 4 especially those three words take away 
sins. That's the significant difference that we're talking about here. Therefore, when He came into the world, speaking of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God manifest in the flesh, Emmanuel with us, God born of the virgin to be among us, it said this, He said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins. For sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are of which are offered according to the law. Then he said in verse 9, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. So he, he, it says, highlight this, it's in, I highlight it in mine, it says, it says, he takes away the first that he may establish the second. Again, that word, take away. He's taken it away. He's established something new, something in accordance to the body of the Messiah that had come. And by this, it says, by that, Will we have been sanctified by that? We will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. That's good news. This is a hopeful message. This is wonderful things to read about. And in these first 10 verses, we read the first of the three reasons for why Jesus' sacrifice is, 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 is superior to the old covenant sacrifices. And it's, and it's the Jesus' sacrifice is superior because His blood has the ability, as I had you mark here in verse 4, it has the ability to take away our sins. Have you ever had anything taken away from you? Most of us look at that in a negative connotation. My first car, I had a really cool stereo system. It was taken away from me by a thief. I've had things taken from me but I've had other things taken away from me that I was like, I'm sure glad I don't have that anymore. I know people who've had cancer and it's been taken away. It's been cut out. They've been healed. Disease and illness. And in regards to sin, this is a wonderful thing. Taken away. Jesus' sacrifice is superior because of the ability to take away our sin while the blood animals, the blood of animals could not take away sin. At best, we're told here, right, that they were just a temporary covering for sin. That's what we've talked about many times up to here. Just a covering for sin. That it was a way that God would, would look past the sin for this time that was to come as He was merciful in, 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 throughout that old covenant to those who would walk in obedience to the plan that He had set forth that pointed forward to the Messiah and to this one sacrifice that would take away sin. In fact, this is a superior thing that John the Baptist declared about Jesus when, when he had come to John at the Jordan River and John announced that Jesus was the Messiah. This is recorded for us in John chapter 1, verse 29, where John proclaiming the Messiah when he showed up, it said the next day, John saw Jesus coming to him. John had been baptizing there in the wilderness, in the Jordan River, and he saw Jesus coming. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John rightly declared this, hear this, because God Himself had prophesied this very thing in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 10 through 11. 
telling about the Messiah and what he would do, the work he would go, he would accomplish, the suffering he would undergo to accomplish this task. And it says in Isaiah 53, verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his day and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the honor or shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. How? Why? For he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus takes away our sin by taking it upon himself. In other words, Jesus, by His sacrifice of Himself on the cross of Calvary, He, once and for all, took away our sins as He bore them upon Himself. He took them upon Himself. And as a matter of fact, there was this great exchange that happened. He said, my sinlessness in exchange for your sinfulness, your unrighteousness, my unrighteousness for His righteousness. The apostle Peter wrote about this in 1 Peter chapter 20 or 2 verses 23 through 24 and said this. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judged righteously, who himself bore our sin in his own body on the tree that we having died to sin might live for righteousness. Who himself bore our sins on his own body? By whose stripes you were healed, he says. And the foundation for the guys, the foundational reason for why this is so important, because all the problems we have in this life, I had you think about them earlier, societally, nationally, globally, personally, individually. Think about all of them. Out of all the problems that we face, out of all the problems that we have in this life our single greatest problem is singular it's a sin problem that's the single greatest problem that every person whoever has been whoever is and whoever will be that's the single greatest problem that we'll all have and by nature we are all sinners and by the choices we make each of us prove i think beyond a shadow of a doubt that our sin nature we have a sin nature that is sinful. That our nature is sinful. And it's been well said that we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And so the bottom line is no matter what kind of religion a person has, think about it, this world is full of various kinds of ways that man has contrived in his own thinking by which he may reconnect to God. And no matter what kind of these religions are that a person might have today, if their religion does not have the ability and the power to deal with the singular greatest problem, this sin problem, it's not worth anything. And this is precisely what verse 1 is beginning to point out to us when it mentions that the old covenant law being just a shadow of the good things to come and illustrates the inadequacy of the animal sacrifices which were never able to make those who sacrificed or it was offered up for, it was never able to make them perfect. And this word shadow is a significant word. It's the Greek word skia. 
It, 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 it more precisely means a hazy outline. And the point being made by this illustration, this, this, this definition is that the law as it pertains to the animal sacrifices that had previously come, right, were just a hazy outline. They were just a picture or a foreshadowing of the good things to come. And because of this, those sacrifices had no real power in and of themselves to take care of the sin problem that we have. Think about it. What does a shadow, what can a shadow do? I, I have shadows up here right now on the pulpit. I can't turn the page with the shadow. I can't scroll up or down with the iPad. Who knows? Maybe someday you can, but not today. You still got to touch. still amazing to me that you can just you know, move it with your finger, but I don't understand the technology, but a shadow can't do that. They have no power. Why? Because there's no substance in them. Who here would ever want to purchase the shadow of something? Last a couple weeks ago, I told you how I got a, we finally, 30 years, we got a car. We got a, a newer car. And um, let's say I decided to sell it. If you guys ever bought anything on Craigslist, you know there's some, some scams going on out there, right? I listed my car on Craigslist. When you guys saw it, you're like, oh, yes, I've been looking for that car. I've got to drive to Canyon City, though. Anything good come out of Canyon City. <laughs> And you come, I say, meet me at the church because everybody wants to meet in a, in a, in a safe place and, and my car's out there. The car's casting in the shadow. I said, hey, listen, I don't, I don't want to mislead you, but I'm not really selling the car. But today only for the same price, you can buy the shadow of my car. Good deal? No, you'd be mad. You'd say you drove two hours a gear. You'd be like, are you kidding me, a shadow? We think about that and we see the humor in that because we see it as a foolish thing. And yet the imagery here, and it's not really, it's not saying it's like that. It's saying it is, it was, it is. These Old Testament sacrifices are shadows of what was to come. Why would we ever buy into that? Remember that because you think, well, I don't participate in the Old Testament sacrifices. I would suggest to you that we offer at times our own sacrifice apart from the sacrifice that Jesus made. And we're doing the same thing. We're purchasing a shadow. We're buying into a shadow. Now, a proof that the old covenant sacrifices were powerless shadows, hazy outlines that could never change our evil or wicked heart, which really is the root cause of our sin problem, and do away with any sin, is the fact, as verse 1 here points out, right, that they had to be repeated year by year. And in verse 11, when we get there, you'll see that even the regular priest, high priest year by year, the, the, the regular Levitical priest, day by day, had to offer sacrifices. So if they had the power to perfect us, then the high priest who made the yearly sacrifice and the Levitical priest who made the daily sacrifices would, to, they, 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 they would not had to have repeated these things if they were powerful in what they were set to do. But they did offer daily. They did offer yearly. So what was the purpose? God is not a God of waste. He didn't set forth the old covenant and the law and the sacrificial system just because he wanted to waste people's time. God's not a God of waste. So what was the purpose of the skia? What was the purpose of these shadows? Which according to verse 2, could not purify us. It could not take away the consciousness of sin. And in verse 3, it tells us that their purpose was to be a reminder of sin. Raise your hand if you'd like to be reminded of your sin. Even when the spouse brings it forward? It's no fun. Even when we're confronted with our sin, nobody has to remind us. We just know we're there. It's not fun. 
It's a very condemning thing most of the time. And yet, the point is, is that the sacrifices, these Old Testament sacrifices, these shadows, the, 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 the blessing of it in that moment is that it was at that time a remembrance of sin. The Apostle Paul would even say that by the law, I knew what sin was. It was a schoolmaster, a teacher to me. We don't know. Why? Because there's no good in us. There's no righteousness in us. We don't know what is good apart from the goodness of God. And he reveals it. And so it pointed to a need for a Savior, but it never brought forth the remission of sins. This religious word that we don't often use outside of church. And remission meaning this, a release from the debt that we owed as a result of our sin. The Bible says that we all owe a debt. The wages of sin is death. That's the debt that we owed as a result of our sin. But yet, the Old Testament sacrifices brought a remembrance, not a remission, not a releasing from the debt that we owed as a result of our sin, which ultimately would give us and does give us a clean conscience before God. And so these shadows being reminders of sin, they serve the purpose, here's God's purpose of reminding us that there was a need for a better sacrifice. It pointed forward to the cross, to the sacrifice that Jesus would make. And in the meantime, these animal sacrifices were a covering. We read that last week, that God in His mercy would look past the sins of those who were looking forward to a better sacrifice that was foreshadowed or was, shadow, was, was in the, the shadow of what they were called to do in the meantime as they waited, reminding of a need for a Savior. Now, of course, we know that Jesus is who these sacrifices were a shadow of, and as we continue on, we clearly see this. But one thing to point out one thing to point out when we're talking about the law, as it's really mentioned here for us in this text, is that as it pertains to the Old Covenant or to any of the Old Testament, is that not just the sacrifices, but all of it was a shadow. It's all a hazy outline. It's all a skia. It's a shadow of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Old Testament and New Testament, it's all about Jesus who came to do what the law could not do. In fact, Jesus pointed this out several times as He spoke to people while He was here on this earth. One of the ones that stands out to me is as Jesus was speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees in John chapter 5, verse 39. And He said to them, You search the Scriptures, speaking to these religious men, these religious leaders, really these hypocrites who were all okay on the outside, but, but full of sin and dead men bones on the inside. He says, you search the Scriptures, the Scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life. But Jesus said, these are the things that testify of Me. They're all pointing to Me. And here I am. You think there's life in this, in the law, in the doing, in the keeping? He said, they were all shadows pointing towards Me. And Jesus was saying, as He would remind them and say, He says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. The life is found in Me. Furthermore, when, when Jesus had risen from the grave, even His own disciples were in despair. And they, they saw Him die on the cross. And, and, and they lost heart. And Jesus speaks to a couple of them as they're walking on the road. And in Luke 24, verses 25-27, through 27, Jesus pointed the same truth out. He said, then, it says, Then Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? 
And then it says this, and then beginning at Moses, the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, the Torah, beginning at Moses, and down through all of the prophets, all of the Old Testament that we have, it says that Jesus gave them a Bible study. It says he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. They were always, always pointing to the coming of the Messiah, the work that he would do, the sacrifice that he would make once and for all. And beginning in verse 5, in contrast to the ineffective sacrifices of the Old Testament, we see this key word. It's the word therefore. Look at it, meaning because these Old Testament sacrifices were powerless to take away sin, Jesus, the better sacrifice, was sent into this world. And he said in verses 5 through 7, this quote from Psalm, verse 40, Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. And in doing so, they're applied to this incarnation, the incarnation of the Savior, the incarnation of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah who would come. And even though I don't want to get too sidetracked with this, a lot of people make a big deal of this, but even though there's a slight variation when you go read Psalm 40, verse 6, and compare it here to what is written in the Old Testament, there's a slight difference where it says, my ears you have opened instead of what we read here, a body you have prepared for me. And this has to do with the Greek translation of the New Testament. It's found in the Septuagint. I don't want to go into it, but the meaning is not lost. That reference to my ears you have opened speaks of a, of a, of a, a Jewish cultural thing that's found in the Old Testament of one who was a slave who has paid his debt in full, has made a decision to continue on voluntarily free will choice to still continue to serve in the master's house. No longer as a slave, but now as a bond servant. In the Old Testament, we're told that if a man chose to do this, then the, the master of the house would take that man out of his house. He would put him up against the doorpost there of the door. He would place his ear on it and he would take an awl and drive a hole in it and put a gold ring. And it was this free will. So it was signed to everybody. This man said, I've made a decision, my free will decision to live here in my master's house. Everything that I am and everything that I have is part of this. And so we see the connection where it says, a body you have prepared for me. It's the same thought process. But it's clear, let's not miss the main point of the context of what we're reading here. It's clear that this quote is ultimately connecting Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrifices. But more importantly, it's declaring that Jesus' sacrifice is effective to sanctify us. Another religious word. Through the offering his body once for all, and this is the will of God which Jesus came to do. This is what we're told here. In other words, hear this, it always has been. It always has been the will of God to replace the old covenant with the new covenant and in turn save us through the death and resurrection of his son who came to do for us what we could not do on our own, which was this. It was to live his life in complete, perfect obedience to God the Father. I want to point out that twice in these verses we're told that God had no pleasure in the old covenant sacrifices. You read this. It may seem a little odd to, 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 to read that and go, what? He had no pleasure in them. But hear this. This doesn't mean that the covenant sacrifice is wrong or the people receive no benefit from obeying God's law. This is what it means. It only means that God had no delight in the sacrifice apart from a heart, an obedient heart, a heart that was in love with God. God's always concerned about the heart. We know this. Not just the outward behavior, but the heart. But as you know, the problem is this. 
when we look back at the sin problem, the problem is that our hearts are disobedient. Right? Our hearts are disobedient. All sin originates in our heart, in the inner man. And like the Hebrew people who wrongly came to believe that a sacrifice or an offering was a substitute for obedience, hear this, church, we too can wrongly believe the same thing. We can think that if we make an offering or a sacrifice, that somehow that offering and sacrifice is now adequate compensation for our disobedience. There are whole religions that are based upon this theology. the, the, The common word that's used there is penance. I've sinned, okay? Don't sin anymore, but go and do this. And go and do this. As if we can do something to reestablish ourselves right with God. You see, there's Old Testament examples of this, and the prophet Samuel said it, I think, in a very profound way to King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, who was making the sacrifice, which he should have never done. He said to him, Has the Lord a great delight in your burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? He says, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Also, King David, you remember King David, right? The adulterer or the murderer who was confronted in it, but with his hidden sin by the prophet Nathaniel after he had sinned with Bathsheba and had her husband murdered. By the way, within the law, there's no sacrificial provision made within the law for those sins. If you committed adultery or if you murdered, those were sins punishable by death. David deserved death. There was no sacrifice. But yet, when David came to terms with this, when Nathaniel confronted him with this beautiful story, Nathan was all, it's me. Because Nathaniel said to David, David, you're the man. And David, David was broken. And he realized what he had done. And he realized that there was nothing he could do about it to be right with God in the Old Testament sacrificial system. And so he writes about this in Psalm 51, verses 16 through 17. He says, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are this a broken spirit confronted with your sinfulness, humility, coming in agreement to God with what He has said about you, a broken and contrite heart, submission to God's will and plan at a heart level. And these, O God, You will not despise. And lastly, in a more profound way, God Himself said in Isaiah chapter 1, it's going to be nine verses, 11-20, through 20, speaking about the sacrificial system and a heart apart from the work and will of God. He said, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to Me, says the Lord? I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of, fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats when you come to appear before Me. Who's required of this of your hand to trample my courts? Bring me no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. New moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of your assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil from your doing before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. 
rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. And here's what it all boils down to. Hear this as it relates to where we're at, even the new covenant. It says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins be like scarlet, staining you, marring you. He says, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse... And rebel. If you do not come and reason with me, God says, if you fuse, refuse, if you rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the Lord, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And in a sense, it goes back to what we read at the end of verse 9. There will be judgment. Apart from the salvation and the work of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, there is the sword, there is judgment. And the point is this. We want to bring a sacrifice for our disobedience when we sin and when we disobey because we, kill, we feel convicted by our disobedience. But yet, listen, church, our sacrifice, whatever it is we conjure up on our own, is ineffective because it only reminds us that we're sinners. But yet here, even in the book of Isaiah, God tells us to come. He doesn't say we're without sin. He says, you're a sinner. You're in trouble. Come. With a right heart, come and let us reason together with Him and realize that even though our sins are red like crimson, they will be made white as snow if we are obedient. What is our act of obedience? The Bible teaches us in this new covenant. It's singular. It says when, when His disciples said, Lord, what must we do to do the works of God? What must we do? What must we do? And Jesus said this, one thing, believe in Him whom He sent. Our act of obedience is to accept and to rely on this effective sacrifice that He, by His will, has provided for the forgiveness of our sins. This is because when we accept the sacrifice that God provides for us, there is the remission of our sins. There is the removing of the debt that we owe. Once and for all, we are released. Because as verse 10 points out, we're sanctified. Hear this, we're literally set apart from our sin through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. Where did our sin go? On Him. Once and for all. It's not that Jesus moseys around a few years later and goes, oh, here, have it back. It's paid for. It's done. It's settled. There's remission. And this is because Jesus, who lived in perfect obedience, has the ability to accomplish. He has the ability to finalize. He has the ability, hear this, to fulfill an agreement, a covenant that we cannot keep on our own. And this leads us to the second reason, last one for this morning, for why Jesus' sacrifice is better than the old covenant sacrifice. And it's because of this. It's because Jesus' sacrifice does not need to be repeated. And that's hopeful because, you know what? I still sin. You still sin. It says that He died once and for all for sin. And this is verses 11-18. through And every... Priest, verse 11, stands ministering daily the offering and daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. By this one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnessed to us for after he said 
had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them. This is prophesied from the book of Jeremiah. This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he added, their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. For where, now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. You see, guys, these, these, these verses, in these verses, Jesus' new covenant sacrifice that's spoken of previously here at the end of verse 10 is now contrasted with the new covenant sacrifices that the priests made. These contrasts are that the Levite priests stand daily, but Jesus has sat down. The Levite priests had offered the same sacrifices often, every day, every year, and yet Jesus offered one sacrifice Himself for, one, for all for one time. And the fact that Jesus sat down after He ascended to the Father is this testimony to the fact that the work has been completed. It's also spoken of in chapter 1 and chapter 8 of this book of Hebrews. But this is in contrast to the work of the, 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 the Levitical priesthood and the high priest. We know that in the Mosaic Law, when, G, when Moses went on the, tabern, up on the Mount Sinai and received the instructions for the construction of the earthly tabernacle, there was never any directions, blueprints, instruction given for a chair or any other kind of thing to sit upon to be made or placed in the tabernacle or the temple. Never. And this is due to the fact that the work of, the, work of offering sacrifices was and could never be complete with the animal sacrifice, so they had to be constantly repeated every single day. Again and again and again and again and again and again for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And like has already been pointed out, this constant repetition of these sacrifices was the proof that it did not take away sin. So when we think about it, it's an amazing thought to consider that, hear this, when you read in the book of Josephus, it's, it's, it's spoken of that um, Jesus, Josephus is a Jewish historian, um, that it was an estimated on that, that year that Jesus was crucified, when he held that last Passover meal with his disciples. And he had sent Peter and John to go and prepare for the Passover in the upper room. And they would have gone and purchased the lamb and went through all the, the rituals of that. It's estimated that one million lambs were sacrificed that year in the tabernacle, in the temple. Think about that. That was one year. I don't know if it was always that amount, but year after year after year, generation after generation after generation after generation from the day of Exodus until the coming of the Messiah. And I point that out because it's an amazing thing to consider that Jesus accomplished with one sacrifice forever what tens of millions of animal sacrifices could not accomplish. And I think this is something that we should personally consider because it reminds us that there's nothing we can do, nothing we can stop doing, nothing we can offer or sacrifice that will ever come close to accomplishing what Jesus alone has done for us. So according to verse 14, by one offering God perfected and has given a right standing forever to those who have been set apart through faith in Jesus Christ, sanctified and back in verse 10, we read that we've been sanctified. But here in verse 14, we read that we're also being sanctified. It's a process. And positionally, we stand positionally made right 
before God, verse 10 is telling us, but yet in verse 14, there's this progressive sanctification, which is this process that you and I are all going through, where we're being transformed into the very image of God, where I today am more like Jesus than I was yesterday through the work of the Holy Spirit because of the sacrifice that Jesus made, and the same is for you. And, and guys, I'm so grateful that I'm not the same man I was 30 years ago. Let me tell you, you, do, you wouldn't want nothing to do with me standing up here or being in your home or anywhere around you or your kids. There was no Jesus in me. No God in me. No love, no compassion, no forgiveness, no mercy, no grace, no goodness, no kindness, no long-suffering, no patience. But there is today, and it's all because of Jesus. This is what we read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. The worship team wants to come up. We're going to close when the Apostle Paul wrote and said with this, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in the mirror the glory of the Lord, we're all being transformed into the same image, the same image of the Lord from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So, the Old Testament sacrifices produce a remembrance of sin, but Jesus' sacrifice Christ's sacrifice makes it possible for the remission of sin, meaning it's been sent away. Our sins have been pardoned and sent away forever. If you'll stand as we prepare to worship, I want to read you two passages of Scripture that speak to that, this wonderful, joyful hope that I want to send you with this morning. In Psalm 103, verse 12, it says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. I want you to ponder that with me for just a second. Everybody knows where the North Pole is, right? And we know the South Pole is, at least on the map or a globe. If you go from the North to the South, that's a finite uh, distance. You can measure that. And Jesus said, I didn't throw them. God said, I didn't do away with them as far as from the North to the South. He said, it's from the East is to the West. And if you walk East... How far do you have to go before you get to west? You can never do it. You can never do it. And if you walk west, you'll never come to the east. As far as from the east is the west, so far as he removed our transgressions. And lastly, Micah 7.19. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of of the sea. And Father, we know that means to return nevermore. And we're so grateful, God, that through our faith in you, through the work that you've done, the sacrifice that you made, we have this joyful hope that we stand right before our Father in heaven. And judgment, wrath no longer waits for us, but salvation. And we look forward to that day, Lord. We wait with great anticipation, with hope and joy and expectancy for that day when you call us home to be with you. In the meantime, Lord, may we take this good news that we have, this life that we've been given, and share it with those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.